Hi, David. Good to be back after our August break. Our return has coincided with a reversal of the summer rally in risk markets. Hi, Alex. Yes, it is good to be back. Um, and, you know, we're back into September, which is typically a volatile month in markets. But it was really the gathering of central back bankers at uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at the end of August that marked the end of the summer rally. Um, Fed Chair Powell basically pushed back on the market narrative of a Fed pivot. So the Fed actually cutting rates uh, next year. And, and that kind of underpinned, I think, the rally in US equities and, and risk assets more broadly through the summer. Um, instead, Powell basically warned against repeating the mistakes of the 1970s when policy was eased before inflation had been uh, properly extinguished. So his message, I think, was pretty clear. The Fed would keep rates higher for longer and until inflation was sustainably near its 2% target. Now, you know, this is something we've discussed before, Alex. I, I do think the Fed is going to, you know, push back on, you know, market rallies or excessive ex exuberance in, in markets um, if that is leading to a meaningful easing in financial um, conditions. And, and I do think that Powell's comments at Jackson Hole uh, were a reminder to investors not to, if you like, fight the Fed that does want tighter financial conditions in order to uh, bring down inflation. So we've seen you know, Treasury bond yields move move higher. The markets kind of repriced um, that sort of higher for longer path for, for Fed funds. And, and the US dollar's yet again been on a tear. Um, so the market's pricing now, market pricing now sort of implies the Fed will raise interest rates another you know, three quarter percentage point at its next meeting and that the Fed funds rate will you know, probably peak around 4% by March of next year. Why is the US dollar so strong? Yeah, I, I think it is important to pick up on what's happening uh, with the US dollar. I, I mean, I think of the US dollar along with um, oil as, as basically, you know, one of the key global macro prices. Um, and, you know, if, if you look at the uh, DXY, so that's an index of the US dollar against a basket of other major currencies, it's up about 15% uh, uh, or so uh, so far this year. Um, most of that rise in the dollar has actually been against other developed market currencies rather than emerging market currencies. And, and I think that kind of speaks a little bit to one of the reasons why the dollar is so strong. Um, in the case of emerging markets, a lot of those central banks actually arguably were ahead of the Fed in raising interest rates. So the currencies have sort of held up a little bit better against the dollar. But when we look at other developed market central banks, notably the, the, the European Central Bank, but others as well, you know, they've lagged behind um, the Fed as the Fed has been tightening um, uh, policy. And so I, I think that does explain much of the strength of the um, dollar. I mean, if, if you look by historical standards, you know, arguably, if you look on a sort of fundamental basis, and the dollar does look um, expensive, but it's hard to kind of bet against the US dollar at the moment. I mean, the US economy appears to have gained some growth momentum in uh, recent months, while the economic outlook for Europe and for China continues to worsen. And, you know, if you're going to be bearish on the dollar, you've got to be bullish another currency against it. And that's quite hard to kind of find at the moment. Uh, the euro is still weighed down by the Russia-induced energy crisis. That's wiped out its current account 
um, uh, surplus, as, as well as the you know, very large gap in nominal and real yields with the US. Um, the Japanese yen is at a 40-year low against the US dollar because the Bank of Japan you know, continues to sort of stand against the tide of uh, global monetary tightening. And, you know, the Chinese yuan is, is weakening on the back of some policy easing and, and again, an economy that's struggling, you know, with, with uh, Beijing zero COVID policy and a, and, and a deflating property market. And, and also at times of sort of geopolitical as well as global economic uncertainty, um, you know, the US dollar is, is the sort of safe haven asset of choice for investors all over the world. So, I think until global growth fears ease and the market is confident that the peak in Fed funds is in sight, um, I think it's going to be quite difficult to stand against King Dollar. And what are the implications of a stronger dollar? Well, a stronger dollar is helping the Fed to, or will help the Fed to call the US economy and inflation as part of the sort of tightening of US financial conditions. Um, it's also proving a very powerful channel for transmitting Fed hawkishness to the rest of the world. Uh, essentially, you know, the strong dollar is forcing other central banks to, to basically follow the Fed with more aggressive rate hikes or risk seeing their own currencies depreciate even further. And with that, you know, effectively importing more inflation into um, their economy. And, and a stronger dollar also sort of more generally tightens global financial um, conditions, the sort of effective cost of capital, because it raises the local currency cost of servicing dollar debt um, and of dollar priced uh, commodities um, as, as well. Uh, broadly speaking, I mean, a big rise in the dollar is not a positive backdrop for global risk assets. Uh, it reduces the earnings of uh, US multinationals, including big tech firms that you know, dominate global um, equities. It puts pressure on many countries, including emerging markets. Uh, it worsens global trade imbalances um, as, as, as well. And, and when we've in the past seen, you know, really dramatic moves in the dollar, we can see that it has kind of spillover effects across global asset prices that can um, expose sort of financial fault lines that can be an additional source of uh, market volatility. Uh, more positively, I do think we're starting to see that the strength of the dollar is uh, contributing to some downward pressure on commodity and especially um, oil prices. And in that respect, you know, is a welcome source of global disinflation. The ECB raised interest rates by 75 basis points, the biggest move since the creation of the euro. What's your take on the ECB decision and the outlook for the euro area? As you say, Alex, um, they you know, did a 75 basis point um, increase. So that gets the deposit rate um, uh, to three and a quarters um, percent. So still pretty low when you think you've got inflation at nine percent in the uh, euro area. Um, it, it's actually we were talking about, you know, the um, dollar and the strength of the uh, dollar. I, I do think that the depreciation of the euro exchange rate, I think, has kind of tipped uh, the ECB to, to go for a 75 rather than a 50 basis point um, rate hike. But that being said, um, it doesn't really seem to be providing much um, support to um, the euro right now. Um, you know, ECB President Lagarde certainly was trying, I think, to sound hawkish. Um, she emphasised that current rates are 
um, you know, too low to bring down inflation, um, that rates will have to uh, be increased at you know, over the next several meetings, um, she, she actually made a bit of an odd comment about, um, you know, several being more than two, but less than five meetings. Um, as I said, I thought it was a bit kind of odd. It's almost like sort of fell back into forward guidance, something which she kind of abandoned at the last meeting. But, but, but anyway, you know, more rate hikes to come. Um, you know, we did see, you know, European bond yields move higher, um, in the aftermath of the ECB decision, um, it, Italian uh, BTP spreads, though, uh, were pretty much um, unchanged. Um, the, the, the market right now is pricing another 100 basis points of rate hikes over the remaining two meetings this year and a peak early next year of around about 2% in the ECB, ECB uh, deposit rate. Um, we, we also saw the ECB again meaningfully revise up its forecast for inflation. Um, and so inflation is not now expected to fall back to the ECB's 2% target until um, 2025. And on growth, the ECB's baseline forecast is that the euro area stagnates in Q4 of this year um, and in uh, Q1 of 2023, but it actually avoids an outright recession. Um, as, as listeners will know, I mean, you know, we have been, you know, we do think that the euro area is going into inflation in, in, in recession because of the severity of the sort of, um, uh, you know, energy crisis that it um, uh, faces. And, you know, were that crisis to get worse then in a downside scenario that the ECB uh, presented as well, then, then they have uh, Europe going into um, recession. I mean, look, I, I, my, my main takeaway is really that the ECB and, and I think the outlook for the euro area as a whole is, is, is to a large extent hostage to events outside of its control. Um, you know, you know, what does Moscow decide to do in terms of, uh, you know, oil and gas supplies to uh, Europe? What does the Fed decide in terms of further um, interest rate increases? And how does that spill over in terms of the uh, euro dollar exchange rate, even in terms of what, you know, Beijing chooses to do in terms of, um, you know, stimulus for the um, Chinese uh, a, a, a economy. So um, I, th I think the outlook is pretty negative at the moment for for, for, for Europe. Um, I think that's, you know, certainly cons the consensus view to some extent that is kind of in the price of um, European assets. Uh, but for I think for the ECB and for the euro area, there's just a lot of moving parts and they're not really in control of their uh, own destiny. Next week is a meeting of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. What are you expecting and more generally, what's the outlook for the UK with a new prime minister? Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of the Bank of England meeting next week, um, you know, expecting another half point increase in the base rate to two and a quarter percent. Uh, the, the market's actually pricing a sort of terminal rate of around about four and a quarter uh, percent by the spring of next year. And that's actually despite the Bank of England, in contrast to the ECB, Bank of England actually is predicting um, a recession in, in the UK. Um, I, th I think in terms of you know, the new prime minister and, and, and government, I mean, the interesting question there is, you know, to what extent does the sort of package announced by the new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss um, that's designed to cap the rise in domestic um, energy prices, you know, change um, the outlook for UK inflation growth and, and hence UK 
um, rates. Um, it, it's a pretty ambitious um, package. Still don't have that much detail. And crucially, uh, we actually don't know yet how big a fiscal cost this is going to be, how much additional borrowing um, is going to require by the UK government. But the estimates are you know, pretty huge. Um, they range from 100 to sort of 150 billion pounds. So that's equivalent to more than 5% of uh, UK uh, GDP. Now, capping energy prices will certainly cut UK headline inflation. Uh, which is currently the highest uh, in in the major G7 uh, economies. So, you know, could cut headline inflation going forward by as much as five percentage um, points. That you know will support UK household income. So it's definitely you know growth positive. Um, I think what won't be welcomed by uh, the new occupant of Number Ten Downing Street, though, is that. I think fiscal easing on this scale does, in my view, imply higher rather than lower interest rates from the Bank of England. Um, the UK labour market remains tight. Um, energy is not the only source of inflation in, in the UK. Even if you strip out uh, food and energy, prices are still rising by uh, more than 6%. And actually, by shielding households, by you know being more growth supportive on the fiscal policy um, side, it does mean I think that the Bank of England is probably going to lean against that with uh, a more hawkish stance in terms of um, interest rates. And, and and I think the other worry for the Bank of England as well is that you know despite um, the, you know relatively sort of sharp move higher in UK rate expectations over uh, recent weeks, um, the British pound has I mean it's not just been falling against King Dollar, uh, but it's also started weakening more recently against the the, the euro. And you know the UK's got big and now widening. Um, twin budget and trade deficits, uh, along with the highest inflation uh, amongst the major economies. And, and I think that is a test of the credibility of UK uh, monetary and fiscal um, policy framework. And against that backdrop, you know, I for one do think that higher UK government bond yields and a lower sterling is probably the path of um, least resistance. So I, I do think, you know, whether you look to China, whether you look to UK, you look to the euro area, it's it's pretty challenging environment uh, right now. Um, you know, it's challenging also in the US, but it feels that the uh, sort of US is much more in control of its um, uh, sort of uh, destination. And it's, and it's really still all about the path of uh, uh, US inflation and interest rates and, 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 and what King Dollar does from there. Good to talk to you again, David, and speak with you again soon. Thanks, Alex. This podcast is issued by Blue Bay or one of its entities. Please check the entire Blue Bay disclaimer at the following website, www.bluebay.com forward slash podcast disclaimer. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended, nor should it be intended as investment, tax or legal advice. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, nor is it a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or investment product in any jurisdiction. This podcast is not available for distribution in any jurisdiction where such distribution would be prohibited and is not aimed at such persons in those jurisdictions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. 
Lube makes no express or implied warranties or representations with respect to the information contained in this podcast and hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of accuracy, completeness or fitness for a particular purpose. Bluebay is under no obligation to update the information in the podcast to reflect changes after publication date. The information contained in this podcast is believed to be reliable, but Bluebay cannot and does not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness or completeness. The document is intended only for professional clients and eligible counterparties as defined by the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive or in the US by accredited investors as defined by the Securities Act of 1933 or qualified purchasers as defined in the Investment Company Act of 1940 as applicable and should not be relied upon by any other category of consumer. No part of this document may be reproduced, redistributed or passed on directly or indirectly to any other person, published in whole or in part for any purpose in any manner without the prior written permission of Blue Bay or one of its entities. Copyright 2022.